Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it is always timeless. It's always true. That no matter what is going on in the world around us, we can always trust in it. We can always rely on it. It's always there. It reveals who you are and what your plan is to us. So Lord, I, I, I thank you for those who came out today. I pray that they would be blessed as we uh, learn and hear from your word. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Many archaeological discoveries have completely changed the course of human history as we knew it. For instance, many of you already know this story, but the meaning of the ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics were, was completely lost and unknown to modern humanity until well after the American Revolution and even the establishment of the United States. In fact, it wasn't until 1799 that a French soldier fighting in one of Napoleon's wars in Egypt discovered a piece of stone that would become known as the Rosetta Stone. I know that's not a very good photo of it, but as you can see there, there's three different languages. It's three different looking inscriptions on there, at least. The Rosetta Stone gives a decree issued in 196 B.C. that contained the same order given in three different languages, a form of written ancient Egyptian, a form of ancient Greek, and those Egyptian hieroglyphics. From comparing these three languages and having a knowledge of ancient Greek already, scholars were finally able to decode and unlock the previously long-lost meaning of Egyptian hieroglyphics. However, it would be another 24 years, in 1822, before anyone had any clue would have the beginnings of how to decipher the hieroglyphics. It would still take another 24 years before anybody had the beginnings of how to decipher this. The gifts of speaking in tongues or another earthly language and of prophecy in the church have, as a whole have a divisive and a confusing history. What even are those gifts? Do they exist anymore? If they do, what happens when one speaks in tongues or prophesies? How should one use those gifts? Today we're going to be taking a deeper look at the spiritual gifts of speaking in tongues and prophecy and what their meaning and purpose is along with the cautions for their use. But hopefully by the end of this message, we'll all have a biblical and better understanding of these gifts and be able to clear some things up. So, like we've been talking about in our extended exploration of spiritual gifts, as Paul has been instructing the Corinthian church on, we can gather from our reading of this letter that one of the things that the Corinthian church struggled with was in their promotion of the spiritual gift of tongues. You might be wondering, what in the world are you talking about when you mention having and using spiritual gifts? What's that? What's a spiritual gift? When a person repents of their sin and accepts Jesus' death and resurrection on their behalf to pay the price for their sin that they had no hope of paying, they are immediately indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, literally comes and makes a home within us. We not only get God Himself being inside of us, comforting us, leading us, convicting us, directing us, transforming us, and giving us 
God's peace and joy and hope. But the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit also gives us what's called spiritual gifts. The Apostle Paul lists some of these gifts in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 8 through 10, and lists others elsewhere. They're all to equip each of us to fulfill the individual missions that Jesus gives to us to build the kingdom of God. They range from being able to accurately understand and interpret scripture and being able to sensitively and effectively relay that to others to the more miraculous gifts of having great faith, having powerful prayers that effectively bring all kinds of healing to yourself and others, having powerful prayers that effectively work miracles of protection and provision and deliverance from all sorts of situations and being able to speak in an earthly language you don't natively know but can be understood by someone else whether naturally or supernaturally and this last one that I just mentioned is known in scripture as the gift of tongues When we discuss this gift more in depth, we discuss that looking at Scripture just at face value, not reading anything else into it, and as as a whole, looking at the whole Bible together, not just picking out verses here and there. The gift of tongues is not some ecstatic heavenly language. It's not some ecstatic heavenly language. In fact, when Paul refers to a heavenly language elsewhere, he also includes that it's forbidden for mere humans to speak. We saw that the gift of tongues is a partial foretaste of the coming full and complete kingdom of God. That's what it is. Here's what I mean. When humanity refused to spread out over the whole earth following the catastrophic worldwide flood that only Noah and his family escaped by building a huge ship, they decided instead to stay in one place and build a pagan temple tower to essentially spit in the face of God. That's known as the Tower of Babel. Seeing this blatant rebellion and staunch refusal to do what he already told them to do, God came down to earth and gave everyone a different language. Families in society as humanity knew it were destroyed. With those who could understand each of these new languages flocking together now and now spreading out from each other across the whole earth, thus finally obeying what God told them to do in the first place. Humanity has been dealing with the consequences of the curse of this rebellious disobedience ever since. We've paid thousands of years of warfare and humans doing unspeakable things to each other just because they were different and had different cultures, all born out of different languages. Fast forward to the future. And we see in the New Testament book of Revelation that at the end of everything, God's children from every tribe and nation and culture and ethnicity and race and language will all be gathered together as one, praising and worshiping God together as one. And that's a beautiful image that we get to look forward to. Thus, the gift of tongues is a here and now partial foretaste of what we have to look forward to. We looked at last week how the gift of tongues, like all the spiritual gifts, will cease to exist at the point when Jesus returns for us and sets up his universal kingdom on earth because they will no longer be needed at that point. 
We also saw in Scripture over the past month or so how the only thing we'll be able to take with us into eternity is love. That's the only thing we'll be able to take with us into eternity. Since God will always exist and God is love, the very definition and perfection of love, love will always exist. Therefore, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, the greatest of everything, even faith and hope, which will also eventually not be needed anymore in the full and complete kingdom of God, is love. That's the greatest of everything, love. And that's what brings us to our passage this morning. So if you brought your Bible with you, uh, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. If you didn't, there should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn there. It's in the New Testament. If you're having trouble finding it, just look it up in the table of contents or ask a neighbor. I want us all to see this. And yes, we'll cover all, nine, all, all one, verses 1 through 19 today. You'll see how we do this today. All right. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. First point that we have this morning is the pursuit. And we read the very first two words of 1 Corinthians 14. Pursue love. Since love is the greatest of everything, that's what the Corinthians should be pursuing. That's what we should be pursuing. Since Paul just spent an entire chapter, the previous chapter, chapter 13, on the power, meaning, and embodiment of Christ-like love, it's no wonder then that he instructs the Corinthians to pursue that love. That's why... Uh, that's what they should be pursuing. Not any one of the spiritual gifts. Remember, they had a problem with that. Promoting the spiritual gifts of tongues above all else. But they shouldn't be pursuing any of the spiritual gifts like they should be pursuing love. Since the spiritual gifts will disappear when Jesus comes back for us, that's not what they should be obsessing with pursuing and promoting and putting up on pedestals. What they should be obsessed with is pursuing a life filled with and spent on pouring out Jesus' love to this world. That's what they should be obsessed with. That's what they should be pursuing. That's what we should be obsessed with. That's what we should be pursuing. What Paul also knew what, about the Corinthians, though, what we've seen in this letter so far is that they loved to operate in extremes, right? There was no middle ground for the Corinthians. It was always in extremes. When they heard they should be showing Jesus' love towards each other, they took it way too far and were openly boasting about accepting the disgusting sin of one of their members. They took their Christian liberty too far and were openly participating in pagan temple celebrations. They always took everything one step too far always worked in extremes. And most recent to our discussion this morning, they took the spiritual gifts, namely the gift of tongues, and made it their end pursuit, stopping at nothing to promote and have the gift of tongues. So when Paul says, that's not the point, the point of your Christian life is to pursue God giving you more and more love to share with others so they can catch a glimpse of Jesus and be saved too, he knew what was going to happen. He knew what was going on in the Corinthians' minds. He knew the Corinthians were going to once again swing to the other side of the pendulum and say, okay, we hear you, so now we shouldn't care at all about figuring out what our, what our spiritual gifts are and using them. Paul already knew what they were thinking. So what follows in verse 1 is Paul's disclaimer. The second part of verse 1. Yet, but, 
desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. He's saying, whoa, 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 whoa. Hold up. I know what you're thinking. Pursue the greatest thing of all, and that's to exemplify the love of Jesus. But don't also neglect or abandon the spiritual gifts you know God has given to you. After all, Paul just spent all of chapter 12 harping on that, right? Figuring out what your spiritual gift is and using it to build up the body of Christ. That is the church. He spent an entire chapter on that. But what would have been very surprising to the Corinthians when they read this for the first time is that instead of their precious gift of tongues ending the sentence, ending verse 1, what gift does Paul say to desire instead? Prophecy. Now why in the world does Paul state that gift? That kind of comes out of the left field, doesn't it? Well, Paul gives his reasoning and what follows. So we talked about the pursuit, and secondly, we're talking about the purpose. Paul compares the gifts of tongues and prophecy in these next verses. Not to belittle tongues in general, but to put that gift in its proper perspective in relation to the other gifts, and especially to prophecy. In general, what follows is saying, what is best for the building up of the individual church is what should be desired. What is best for the building up of the individual church is what should be desired. In general, the gift of prophecy is the most beneficial for the building up of any church, no matter what its location is, no matter where they are in their faith development, the gift of prophecy is always the most beneficial for the building up of any church. Like I've mentioned recently, some of these spiritual gifts are more beneficial for a church in one location and faith development than another location and faith development, and therefore are more frequently divvied, up, uh, divvied out by the Holy Spirit, depending on the location or the faith development. For instance, a church being planted in a part of the world where the gospel is not yet firmly established will require the gift of tongues to back up the power of the gospel message and to back up the power of the universalness of the, of the gospel message. A church already well established and further along in its overall faith development and in a place where the gospel presence is firmly established, no matter how much it's ignored, such as the United States, will not, as bene will not benefit as much from tongues and will not be legitimately given out by the Holy Spirit as frequently. But as Paul is driving at here, the gift of prophecy is always beneficial to the church, no matter what its location is and no matter what its faith development is. Why? Well, that's what we're going to find out here. In terms of tongues, Paul says this, verse 2, For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God, for no one understands. But in his spirit he speaks mysteries. Paul will explain later on that the gift of tongues requires, requires someone else to be able to interpret that language. As he will reference further on in verses 10 through 11, noted by one biblical scholar, this interpreter may be a native speaker of that language spoken by the one with the gift of tongues who can understand it and be edified by it. Or, as he referenced in chapter 12, verse 10, 
Someone may have been supernaturally given the gift of interpreting the language spoken by the one with the gift of tongues and relaying what's being spoken to the rest of the congregation in that congregation's dominant language. That's what the gift of interpretation means. They hear what the one with the gift of tongues is saying and have the supernatural gift of interpreting that and relaying it to the congregation in their dominant language. Either way, there needs to be an interpreter. It's required in Scripture. Otherwise, it's like understanding Egyptian hieroglyphics before 1822. No one does. No one will. Apparently, though, more often than not, in the Corinthian congregation, there was no interpreter present. That was the trouble they were having. There was no interpreter present. So as Paul says in verse 2, all that's going on when people are speaking in tongues in that church and there's no interpreter present, all that's going on is that the one speaking in another language is only really speaking to God. That's what he says in verse 2. They're not really speaking to other people. They're only speaking to God. No one else understands what they're saying, and therefore to them, the one speaking in another language is speaking mysteries. That's what he says at the end of verse 2. There's no element of edification for the rest of the church with that. Because nobody's understanding what's being said. And so, as Paul is getting at, what's the point? Now, I know this is a very sensitive topic, especially with churches who really have no handle on or enforcing any order to people speaking in tongues. But if people are just randomly speaking in tongues and there's no interpreter present, as Paul is getting at here, there's no edification aspect for that ch- for the church. And the question has to be asked, well, what's the point? If there's no interpreter present and the one speaking in tongues is only speaking to God, that can be done in your native language. That doesn't need to be done in another language. Paul will get into the futility and emptiness of that further on. Like I said, I know this is very sensitive. All I want to do is bring out what's clearly in Scripture here. Oppositely, though, Paul gives the value of prophecy in a congregational setting, verses 3 through 4. But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the whole church. The one speaking in tongues without an interpreter is only edifying him or herself. That is, only that individual is deriving any kind of benefit from it. But let me ask you, is that what church is supposed to be? Is that what church is all about? No. Not at all. It's, as Paul has just clearly gone over in chapter 12, it's about many members having different jobs, but all working together as one. Leaning on one another, moving forward together towards one common goal of building itself up as it builds up the kingdom of God. That's what the Bible says church is, church is supposed to be. On the other hand, prophecy fits that bill perfectly. Paul outright states that at the end of verse 4. Prophecy always edifies, it always grows, and it always builds up the church. Why? 
Well, exactly as he says in verse 3. Prophecy builds up, prophecy advances, it encourages, it brings joy, and it comforts the congregation. That's always needed. In a world where the church is constantly maligned, belittled, cast into the realm of irrelevance, and also suffering infighting and division from within, prophecy is vitally needed. Again, as I mentioned time and time again, you might be wondering, what in the world is he talking about when he's talking about prophecy? As I mentioned time and time again, the New Testament gift of prophecy is not the same as Old Testament prophecy. It's not. Old Testament prophets carried the same authority as God himself, being his spokesperson and giving the very words of God. But the, gift, the New Testament gift of prophecy is best understood as something different and not having the same authority. For instance, Paul will give the instruction further on in this chapter that the rest of the congregation, the prophets in the rest of the congregation, are to weigh what is given by a congregant as prophecy to judge its accuracy and therefore its acceptance. There is absolutely no way Paul would have given that caveat if it carried the same authority as Old Testament prophecy. Because the Old Testament prophets were speaking the very words of God. So what is the New Testament gift of prophecy, which continues on through this point in church history, and will continue on until Jesus comes back for us? It's this. It's any sense, or leading, or an image or a dream or a vision that is given by God as revelation, but then is interpreted by a fallible human and relayed by a fallible human. For instance, one with the gift of prophecy may have a sense or a leading they feel is from the Holy Spirit to relay to the church, but they may not fully or accurately interpret that sense or leading nor communicate it fully there may be some things that they're missing. It's up to the, to the other, others in the church that have the gift of prophecy, as we'll find out later on in chapter 14, to, to then decide if it's something that should be accepted as from God. What does that do? That keeps a check even on the gift of prophecy. In other words, one cannot say, I have a message from God, and therefore you need to listen to me, and accept everything I'm about to say as gospel truth. There's always a check on it. But when the gift of prophecy is encouraged in a church, for instance, in a prayer meeting or a Bible study setting, those revelations from God meant to encourage, comfort, and build up a congregation will be a powerful force for the advancement of that church. We shouldn't be scared of using this gift. For we're missing out on a great gift from God meant to be used and meant to be used for the growth of this church. For instance, if you feel like you receive revelation from God for our church, whether by us through a sense or a leading or a prompting by the Holy Spirit, or even outright dreams and visions and, and, uh, and visions, you should be known in the congregation. We should know who you are. We should know that you have the gift of prophecy. You should be identified so those others who also have this gift can determine the accuracy of those revelations and then relay them to the church. There is an established 
order to the use of this gift, as we'll see you later on in this chapter. And when used, this gift has the tremendous potential to be an extremely powerful source of encouragement, comfort, motivation, and joy to the church. So what's Paul getting at when he says, uh, beginning part of verse 5, Now I wish that you all spoke in tongues. What's he getting at when he says there? The gift of tongues is a spiritual gift. There's no denying that. He mentions it in chapter 12. The gift of tongues is a spiritual gift. It's one given by the Holy Spirit for a purpose. Therefore, it wasn't supposed to be despised by the Corinthians, just not put on as high of a pedestal as they were doing. Paul says that he wishes that all of them could speak in tongues, but as noted by one biblical scholar, he also said the same thing about remaining celibate, that he wished that everybody would remain celibate as he was. This, what, what, so what's he, what he's getting at here is this is an ideal in Paul's mind, but certainly not a universal demand that he thought would have universal compliance. It's just a wish. He knows it's, it's not actually going to be true. It's just a wish. In other words, it's like Paul is saying something that we will often say. It would be nice if, even when we know it's never going to happen, we still say it. It would be nice if, while also knowing that those wished-for things are most likely not probable. Furthermore, Paul is saying, while it would be nice if everyone spoke in tongues, what would be even better is if everyone had the gift of prophecy. Paul noted elsewhere that he knew not everyone in the church would have all the gifts, including the gift of prophecy, but he's elevating the use and purpose of prophecy. Why? Because the second part of verse 5, he says, But even more that you would prophesy. And greater is one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets, so that the church may receive edifying. Prophecy was always more beneficial to the church as a whole, because it did not require the use of of an interpreter for it to have any value. It could always be edifying to the church as a whole. The one who had the gift of tongues was always bound to the requirement that someone else was present who could interpret those tongues. So we have the pursuit, we have the purpose, we have the purpose of tongues, we have the purpose of prophecy. And thirdly, Paul spends an extended amount of time on the, the, the rest of this section through verse 19, pointing out the emptiness and the futility and the pointlessness of how the Corinthians were handling the use of the gift of tongues. Apparently, the Corinthians were using the gift of tongues in some kind of unbridled and random way. These would just break out in the middle of the service, speaking what came across as gibberish to everyone else. It was distracting and it served no purpose. Unfortunately, that may still seem familiar today. That's, sadly, that's what happens in many churches today who also continue to see the gift of tongues in this radical way. Unbridled, random, no order, no interpreter. And we'll see what the pointlessness of that will be. Paul says this in verse 6, But now, brethren, if, uh, if I come to you speaking in tongues... 
What will I profit you unless I speak to you either by way of revelation or of knowledge or of prophecy or of teaching? In other words, if one speaks in, a tongue, in tongues, even the great apostle Paul, if he walked in these doors speaking in tongues, but there was no purpose to what he was saying, there was no purpose of edifying the whole church with what was being said. What he's saying here in verse 6 is that it's not profitable and it serves no purpose. Therefore, if one acts like they've been overcome with the Spirit and just starts spouting off gibberish with no intent of sharing some kind of message from God or understanding of Scripture or teaching of that Scripture, especially if there's no interpreter, what we clearly see in verse 6 is that that's pointless. It's meaningless. And one could even go so far as to say even harmful to the kingdom of God meaningless and even harmful to the kingdom of God. Paul further explains that futility in the next couple of verses. Verses 7 through 8. Yet even lifeless things, either flute or harp, and producing a sound, if they do not produce a distinction in the tones, how will it be known what is played on the flute or on the harp? For if the bugle produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? In the first illustration... The instrument is supposed to be used for a purpose. The purpose of producing notes in some kind of pattern. So those who hear what is being played understand it as a designed song. If I opened up our worship time with, by just hitting my guitar strings in a nonsensical way and just singing off key with that strumming, you'd wonder what in the world is going on. Or if the trumpet and saxophone players just started playing notes that had nothing to do with the, what song we were, we were playing, we'd all assume something was wrong, right? I maybe think Doug was up way too late the night before because he was having too much fun balancing the church budget or something. Forgot it was daylight savings time. <laughs> if there's no purpose to what is being played, it would be purposeless and actually really annoying, right? We'd just be like, what is going on here? In the same way, if the one who's playing the military bugle is playing when the saints go marching in or camp town races and everything but the call to arms in preparation for battle, the only outcome that's going to happen is soldiers confusingly looking at each other and not doing anything. That's all that would be accomplished through that. It would be the same purposeless, confusing, and annoying outcome with someone who speaks in tongues with no purpose other than just speaking in tongues. Verse 9, So also you, unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, how will it, will it be known what is spoken? For you will just be speaking into the air. There won't be anything edifying. There won't be anything purposeful. There won't be anything accomplished through that. In speaking about the gift of tongues as speaking in different earthly languages, Paul says in verses 10 through 11, there are perhaps a great many kinds of languages in the world, and no kind is without meaning. If then I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be to the one who speaks a barbarian, and the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. Like I've mentioned before, in a location where the gospel presence is not yet firmly established, the gift of tongues is a huge sign of the power of the gospel. Imagine with me this. Imagine a missionary with the gift of tongues showing up 
to a remote tribe who doesn't even have a written language and speaking to the people of that tribe in their own language about Jesus. That would definitely get their attention, right? But if there is no native speaker of the language being spoken with the gift of tongues, that missionary's message would not be as easily accepted. And without the gift of supernatural interpretation of a tongue, someone walking into a church speaking an entirely different language that no native speaker of that language understood would be seen as completely different. In a way, Paul uses barbarian, it's kind of insensitive, but (laughs) what he's getting at is, in in a way, a, a foreigner, as Paul references here. So Paul says, verse 12, So also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, if you're so zealous of getting spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. That's what you should be zealous about. That's what you should be focused on. Again, Paul says, if you want to be zealous for any of the spiritual gifts, desire and ask God for the ones that are edifying to the whole church, not just for your own benefit. That serves no purpose, and it's meaningless to the kingdom of God. Lastly, Paul gives one last note on the futility of speaking in tongues with no purpose and no interpreter. Verse 13. Therefore, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. Pray that there's an interpreter. That's the bottom line. That's what he finishes that thought up with. That's the bottom line. If you have the gift of tongues, Paul says, that's a good thing. But, pray that, along with your gift, there will also be the gift present in the church of interpretation. See, that's the positive side of tongues. Because the body of Christ is made up of many members all working together, if one given the gift of if, if one is given the gift of tongues, they should seek to see if anyone else has been given the gift of interpreting that. Again, relying on one another. All the members working together. That's the edifying aspect of tongues. It's completely reliant upon another one with the gift of interpretation. And if the interpretation isn't there, then that gift of tongue shouldn't be used. That's why Paul explains what is really going on with a legitimate experience of one who speaks in tongues. Verse 14, But if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays. But what's really going on is my mind is unfruitful. I'm not really thinking about much when I'm speaking in tongues. When one who has the gift of tongues is overcome with the Spirit to start speaking in a language unknown to that person, he or she is merely being a mouthpiece, the vehicle of that message. They don't understand it. It, Their mind is unfruitful. They don't understand it, so it's meaningless to them. Their mind is not understanding what they're saying, so it serves no purpose to them. That message is completely reliant upon someone else to interpret what they're saying and bring meaning to it. What's the point of not having an interpreter and not understanding what you're saying? Verse 15. What is the outcome then? If I pray with the Spirit, and I will pray with the mind also. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with the mind also. Paul would rather pray 
in his own native language. Something that he could both praise God with and understand what in the world he's saying. That would be meaningful not only for him, but for everyone else who could also speak his native language. Otherwise, again, it would be meaningless for anyone who was listening but didn't understand a word you were saying in verse 16. Otherwise, if you bless in the Spirit only, he's speaking about speaking in tongues, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say the amen at your giving of thanks since he does not know what you're saying? Nobody's going to be able to say, well, amen, or hallelujah, or praise God, because they don't understand what in the world you're saying. What, again, what's the point of that? Again, you would be doing everything you were supposed to do, so to speak, but it serves no purpose for the rest of the congregation and therefore would be meaningless. Verse 17. For you are giving thanks well enough. You're doing everything you're supposed to do, but the other person is not edified. There's no interpreter. Nobody can understand what you're saying. So therefore, nobody's being edified. And that's the whole purpose of the church. Edification for the growth of the church was the whole point of spiritual gifts. And if there's no edification going on, there's no point to it. Paul's last words in this section are rebuke directed at the Corinthian church, verses 18 through 19. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than you all. However, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind, Again, in his native language, so he understands it. So that I may instruct others also, rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. That nobody understands, nobody's strengthened by, nobody's edified with, and it's pointless. Paul knew that what was going on in the Corinthian church was that those who had the gift of tongues were being put on pedestals and were seen as better than everyone else in the church. So Paul says, you know what? If anyone should be put on a pedestal for speaking in tongues, it's me. For I speak in tongues more than anyone else I know. But even I want to be as edifying to the church as I possibly can be as a whole. I would rather give up that gift of tongues and just speak in my native language and the dominant language of the congregation if somebody, so somebody could learn something and somebody could grow closer to God. I speak in tongues more than anybody else I know of. But even I want to be as edifying to the church as a whole. And you know, I'm sure Paul was right. Yeah, I'm sure he wasn't exaggerating here. That he spoke more in tongues more than anybody else he knew of. And why was that? Paul shared the gospel with all sorts of people. He shared the gospel walking on major trade routes. Sailing on major trade routes. And meeting all sorts of people from all over the ancient world, from Europe and Africa and Asia and even perhaps beyond that, who would come into these major trade centers. There were all sorts of languages in the world at that point and all sorts of dialects that Paul dealt with. If one were to share the gospel with people from every language known at that point, one would need to use the gift of tongues to communicate that message and use that gift often as they share that gospel message. 
But Paul's point wasn't to boast about it. It was to once again elevate the spiritual gifts that edified the whole church, with or without an interpreter present. Even if he just spoke five words in his native language to others who spoke the same native language, in order to instruct them in biblical teaching, and they listened and did something with that instruction, that would always be of way more value than 10,000 words no one understood, including the person speaking them. I know this was a lot to cover this morning, especially on Daylight Savings Sunday. I appreciate you all following me here. However, it all connected, as we saw, and it all needed to be covered at the same time. I couldn't split it up. It all needed to be covered at the same time. This week, we covered the reasoning Paul had for elevating gifts like prophecy that edified the whole church over the gift of tongues, which required a purpose and required an interpreter to have any kind of meaning. The gift of tongues was a good gift to have, since it was still given by the Holy Spirit but it wasn't anywhere near as superior as the Corinthians were making it out to be. Next week, we'll get into the regulating of these gifts. Remember I talked about how there's a certain order that one needs to use to use these gifts? We're going to get get into that next week so that they're not abused. We're going to talk about the regulating of these gifts. The biggest thing we can take away from these words today is that God is a God of order and a God of purpose. His goal in giving out spiritual gifts is to grow, build up, encourage, strengthen, and comfort the church as a whole, not for any individual's elevation. Again, the Father is the one with the will. The Son is the one who gives out the individual missions. And the Holy Spirit is the one who gives out the gifts to accomplish those missions. Everything is not random. Everything is not willy-nilly, where people just have gifts of tongues and just spout off whatever they want to say. There is a purpose. God is a God of order. There's always a purpose to everything he does. Again, the subject of the gift of tongues and prophecy is an incredibly divisive and confusing subject. Between this week and next week, I hope we'll have a, a better understanding, a biblical understanding of these gifts. This was more of a teaching and instructional message today, but I hope we'll all have a better and biblical understanding of the gifts of tongues and prophecy and the use of them between this week and next week so they can be used as biblically and therefore as effectively as possible. The church is made up of people with all kinds of spiritual gifts, some perhaps a little scarier to use than others, but all beneficial as the Holy Spirit determines. So, again, let us, with God's help, figure out what our spiritual gifts are and then use them for all they're worth in order to bring healing, growth, encouragement, and strength to our church as we continue to move forward in Jesus' name as one. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words that Paul had for the Corinthian church. We thank you for what they revealed to us about what the gift of tongues is, what the gift of prophecy is, how they should be used, what's the purpose behind them. I pray that even as this was more of an instructional and teaching message, that we take these words to heart, 
that we have a, a better and more biblical understanding of these gifts, and that beyond that, that we would continue to explore what gifts you've given to us, what spiritual gifts you've given to us, what's the mission you've given to each and every one of us to which you've supplied these gifts for, and let us all work together as one as we bring this gospel message to this dark and hurting world. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with me as we close out our time.